We're going to read from God's Word. We're continuing in the book of, wouldn't surprise you, Daniel. Um, we're at chapter 3, and, and in a sense, the story we're going to read is a story that we've just been telling, but there's something about reading it from God's Word together. So we're going to read Daniel chapter 3, um, the first six verses, and then later on in the chapter. Let's hear God's Word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up in the plains of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then he summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he'd set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down, worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. The three friends then refuse, and we pick up the story after the, their fellow officials have reported them in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshad, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshad, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshad, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshad, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded among them, around them and saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell 
of the fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshad, and Abednego will be cut to pieces and their houses be turned to rubble for no other God can save in this way. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. I can have the screen. I uh, spent some of last week trying to sort out smoke detectors in my parents' house. Um, Some of you will know we're now supposed to have interlinked smoke detectors, and it's a real pain in the neck. But it reminds us, of course, that fire is to be taken seriously, isn't it? Fire kills. It's why around this church we have fire extinguishers and fire alarms. We take it seriously. But fire is also associated with our Christian history in ways that we sometimes forget. Patrick Hamilton was born in Lanarkshire in 1504. He went as a student off to France, went to study in Paris, and when he was there, he heard the teaching of Martin Luther. And when he came back to Scotland, he began to teach in St. Andrews and share these new ideas of the gospel. He was arrested, he was tried, and on that very same day, he was burnt at the stake in St. Andrews. As he died, He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He was 24 years old. We might hear that story and think, what a waste of a young life. But the manner of his death, the courage, The commitment to those ideas of the gospel that he'd heard that drove him to make that stand got people talking and thinking. What was it about this idea that you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone? What was it about this gospel that made people take that type of stand? And people began to read what Patrick Hamilton had written in a book. One later church historian said this, the reek of Mr. Hamilton infected all it blew on. Twenty years later, another preacher called George Wishaw met the same fate when he was burnt at the stake at St. Andrews. But there in the audience was a young man watching called John Knox. Knox was inspired by it, took up the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the rest, as they say, is history. But it's our history. I wonder, as folk go for a nice little rest, or a nice cream at Janetta's in St. Andrews, and they walk past 
that which you can find on the ground out St. Salvador's Chapel at the University, PH for Patrick Hamilton, or the Martyrs Monument that you will see up beside the golf course. Do they remember? Remember that the Church of Scotland was born in fire. It was born by people who were so committed to Jesus Christ that they were willing to give their lives for Him, willing to walk into the fire for Him. Today, sometimes the Church of Scotland struggles to get out of bed for Him. We've reduced a faith that people were willing to die for because they were so passionate about it, so passionate about what Jesus had done for them to something that has become a hobby, something that has become an inconvenience. It's something that we want to control and limit and make comfortable. Scattered throughout Lanarkshire are monuments to the Covenanters. You will see them in many places. People who went to church facing arrest. What are we willing to do? How wishy-washy sometimes have we made our Church of Scotland faith? I, a, a story, uh, it's a true story actually, which really illustrated it for me. About, about 10 years ago, there were some asylum seekers in Glasgow and they were appealing to the Home Office for leave to remain and the, the Presbytery of Glasgow was supporting them in doing that. And, and, and the reason was that the country that they'd come from persecuted Christians. It, it prohibited anyone sharing their faith or trying to convince anyone to become a Christian and they faced jail if they did that. And so these people who had become Christians were saying, we can't go back because we'll face this persecution. And the Home Office reviewed their case and they wrote to them and said, but you've joined a Church of Scotland congregation. Sharing your faith can't be that important to you. Now, it, it was really interesting. You can imagine the uproar in the presbytery and the anger with the Home Office. But actually it said something, didn't it? that the image of the Church of Scotland now was that we weren't really enthusiastic about those things, not like other serious Christians. We just went through the motions. Where have we come from? Our church was born in the fire. And not just the Church of Scotland, but the whole Church of Jesus Christ. It began, did it not, with Nero persecuting the Christians in Rome. Sometimes them set on fire as human torches because they would not disown the Lord Jesus Christ and they were utterly committed to him. And that brings us to the fiery furnace. The story of Shadrach, Meshad, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar built this huge, big statue. And the first question I asked as I looked at the text was, why did he do that? Why? Now, it might just be because Nebuchadnezzar was a, a megalomaniac and he, he wanted a big statue of himself. Maybe, but actually I think there was something quite political about it. You see, he had an empire full of different people from different racial groups, from different religious groups, he'd conquered, and somehow he had to hold this whole empire together. So what do you do? Well, he put up this big statue, and what he was really saying to people of all different places is, whatever your loyalties, 
whatever your tribal allegiances, whatever the religious practices or your culture that you have, I want your allegiance. I want your first allegiance to be to me. I want you to conform to the culture of my empire. I want you ultimately to say, this is the most important, the most fundamental thing in my life, that I am allied to Babylon and to Nebuchadnezzar. And whatever else I worship, and that's absolutely fine with me, this is the center of the whole thing. You see, most of the people wouldn't have had a problem with worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Yeah, they might have been people who followed Zeus or Athena or this or that or Baal or the god of whatever it was. But if you're a polytheist, it doesn't matter. You can worship one more god, no problem. I can conform. Conformity matters. But it was a problem for a Jew. Why? Because they believed in one God who made heaven and earth. And that God commanded, demanded, that they worship him with all their heart and their soul and their strength. The first commandment was quite clear, the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image. You shall not bow down and worship them. Now, it wasn't that they couldn't serve Babylon. Of course they could serve Babylon. Remember the story we've been saying. These men who came from Jerusalem, from Judea, found themselves in Babylon, and they were told by the prophet Jeremiah, you know, invest yourselves in this place. Be a blessing to it. Settle down. Be involved. Engage. Don't disengage. And here was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and Daniel, their friend, had, had persuaded the king to give them important places where they could serve Babylon. They could, they could be there for the king. They could advise the king. They could administer things. They were engaged and involved in the culture around them. What they couldn't do, what they wouldn't do, was give it their ultimate allegiance because their ultimate allegiance was to the Lord God. And in fact, that is the reason that they served Babylon. Not because they put Babylon first, not because they worshiped Babylon, not because Babylon defined who they were, but because the Lord God defined who they were and he wanted them to be a blessing wherever they go, including in Babylon. The God of the Bible, the one true God, has their hearts and their allegiance. Now, the interesting thing about this story is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't go looking for confrontation. You know, there's some Christians today who go looking for a fight. They go looking for a stance to take. They go looking for a confrontation with the world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't do that. They didn't jump up and say, I'm not doing that. They just didn't do it. In fact, the only reason it came to the king's attention was because a whole load of other jealous courtiers who wanted their job said, hey, look at them. They were content just to carry on serving Babylon, but being true to the God that they loved and they served. And then when they were brought before the king, politely, humbly, respectfully, they said, this is who we are, and we're not doing that. I think sometimes Christians need to take that on board. We need to be people who are willing to say no, willing to say what we believe, but willing to do it in a respectful way. We're not going looking for a fight. Now, here's the thing. What defined the Jewish people? What defines us as Christians is that we have allegiance to the one true God. 
It's not just that we worship him or we go to church or we sing his songs. It's that he is the ultimate reality in our life. He's what it's about. And therefore, there is no compromising. It doesn't matter whether it's the emperor cult in the Roman case or the Babylonian cult or whatever else it is. Our allegiance, our worship belongs to the one true God. Now, today, that's not really much of a danger. I don't really think Boris Johnson is going to put a big statue up and say, you all must worship it. You know, people don't do that anymore. Well, they do put statues up, but, you know, we normally knock them down, don't we? Um, Not build them up. But here's the thing. Idolatry isn't just about a big statue and going like that. Idolatry is where we start to say, this thing is the ultimate thing in my life. This is the thing that really matters. Whatever else matters, this is my ultimate concern. This is the thing that's on the throne of my life. This is the thing that drives me. This is the thing that I will conform to. And idolatry can consist of many different things. Some people, it's money. That's the driving force of their life, is their wealth. For other people, it's, it's things that, are, that are, are, are not bad things. It's maybe pleasure. Really being happy is the most important thing to me. I'll do anything that makes me happy. It makes me unhappy, I'm not doing it. For other folk, it's their career. Careers are good things, but it becomes the ultimate driving force. For other folk, it's, it's, it's the charity work they do, or it's their family, or all of these things become ultimate things. They're not bad things, but they're not supposed to be our God. They're not supposed to be the ultimate thing in our life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no problem with serving Babylon. Serving Babylon was a good thing to do. Blessing Babylon, being involved, being civil servants, those things mattered. That's what God had called them to do. But it was not going to be the ultimate thing in their life. Problem was, that was unacceptable to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had no problem with them going to a Jewish synagogue or or, or reading Jewish scriptures, but ultimately they had to conform. They had to conform to his values, his way, his world. And they, they could not do that because their ultimate loyalty was to the Lord. So we end up in the fiery furnace. But notice this. Sometimes it's little things in a Bible passage that stick out. Notice what they said to Nebuchadnezzar. If you throw us into the furnace, God is able to save us. And we believe he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship your statue. This is very very significant. Because as Christians, we believe in a God who has all things in his hands. We believe in a God who is able to rescue us from every danger, every problem we face. But ultimately, we trust in him and not in what he does for us. We commit ourselves to him and not to what he gives us. We don't come and say, I will trust God, but only if God does X, Y, or Z, or saves me from X, Y, or Z, or or, or heals me from X, Y, or Z. 
We come and we say we believe in a God who is able to do all things, but even if he chooses not to, our loyalty, our love is for him. Even if we die, the answer is still You see, without that verse, the whole story doesn't work. Because without that verse, we say, well, that's absolutely fine. We'll, I will follow you, God, providing you make sure nothing bad happens to me. Providing you make sure I walk through the fire, and I don't get singed, and I don't get burnt, and I don't get dead, and all these things. I'll serve you, Lord, but on my terms. And when we do that, he's not God anymore. Because it's on our terms. It's interesting in the New Testament, the Christians were often persecuted. The Christians often faced very difficult circumstances. They faced abject poverty. And Paul, in his letters, would pray for them. But as he prayed for them, his prayer wasn't, Lord, give them a different government. Lord, change the emperors so that they won't persecute them. Lord, make sure that there isn't a famine. Make sure that the circumstances are better for them. No, his prayer was not that. His prayer was that they would understand how much they were loved, how much Jesus Christ had done for them, that they would be given the strength and the power of God to endure any circumstance that was thrown up. And you see, that is the ultimate power, isn't it? Because it comes to that point where I say, I am committed to the Lord Jesus because he is committed to me and the circumstances can no longer dictate. For I know who I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I know his love and I know he holds me no matter what happens. Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of Auschwitz, who lost his whole family there, wrote this. He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. We might phrase it slightly different. He who has a who to live for. The one God who loved us and gave his son for us can bear with almost any house. I read a story this week of Afghanistan, which brought a tear to my eyes, and it was a story from Open Doors. It's always worth reading their website if you want to read about church when it's really under pressure. A little girl was born to Christian parents in Afghanistan. She was born on the day that Kabul fell. Now we might look at that and we might think that's terrible. Her future is so insecure. So much danger. But her parents, trusting in the God who loved them, simply said her birth is a sign of hope that God will not give up. Afghanistan. There are no guarantees for her safety or her future. But we pray because we believe that God is able to save his people and he will not give up even if the West does. 
We believe in a God who saves his people not from suffering, but through it. And even if he doesn't, he gives them a hope in Jesus Christ that transcends it. And here's where we see it in this passage, and it is so telling, the gospel in miniature. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire that could consume all, and he sees two things. First of all, he sees that the men are, are walking around unharmed, but more than that, he sees four people in the fire, four men. And one of them, he says, looks like a son of a god. In his pagan ways, he doesn't know how to describe it. And we're left scratching our heads. The commentators don't know, is this, is this, is this, what is this? What is being said in this passage is this. God isn't about to remove Nebuchadnezzar's throne, not yet. God isn't about to put the fire out. God isn't about to, to, to save them from the flames. But the first thing that God is going to do is he's going to be there in the suffering and the fire with them. Who is this figure? An angel? A messenger? A vision of God? Who knows? We can debate that. But for Christians, as we read that, we cannot help but see Emmanuel, God with us, and look to Jesus Christ, in whom God came and suffered with us and for us and died on a cross to give us that promise of eternal life in a world restored and renewed. We cannot help but see that. Jesus came and stood in our place that we would know that. It's interesting, as we think about the history of the church and how it was formed, one of those first experiences in the first three centuries of the church was the experience of persecution. And maybe the best place to go and, and see that is if you go to Rome and you go into the catacombs in Rome, you find those tunnels in which the Christians sometimes hid, sometimes worshipped, and very often buried, they're dead. And in those catacombs, you will find sometimes a painting, a very simple painting, almost childlike with a few brush strokes. And it is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the flame with the one who looks like the son of a god. The early Christians were looking at this story, and in the midst of their persecution, they were so aware that it pointed to the fact that God was with them, that God would not let them go. No matter what it happened, they would be faithful because God had been faithful to them. Friends, we were born in that experience of God being with us even in the fire. You know the image of the Church of Scotland? The burning bush. Now, the burning bush, as you, as you know, has been the symbol of the Church of Scotland for some time, and it, it, it's obviously an allusion to the story in Exodus where God appears in the flames of the burning bush. But it's interesting that it was adopted in 1689 in the aftermath of the covenanting period. It was adopted as the church was giving thanks for a deliverance from a period where Presbyterian Christians were being persecuted because they would not conform to the way that the king wanted them to worship, and they worshipped in their own way 
under God's word in the open. In fact, they worshiped down in Dale Estate, didn't they? There's a covenanting tree in the places that people worshiped here. And I wonder, as they put that symbol of the burning bush out at that time, that there was a sense of having come through the fire. The motto that is on it in Latin is nec gamen consumer batur, which means it burns, but it is not consumed. It stands despite the flame because it stands on the rock and it is of God. It's good to learn a little bit of church history, to know where we came from because it has the potential to inspire us, but also to remind us that come what may, the Lord has promised that he will be with us. The gospel Jesus Christ, standing among us, dying our death on the cross that we might know him. Let us renew ourselves in that. We're going to sing together.